Hey, I'm in Japan. I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Charles Ferniho will discuss the thousand days of wonder. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Well, none of us are likely to remember events during the first few years of our lives, yet it is during this period that the rapid development of the brain is laying the groundwork for our emerging self. But what is it like to be in a child's head during those first formative years? Well, joins today to discuss this issue is Dr. Charles Ferniho. Dr. Ferniho is a senior lecturer in the Department of Psychology at Durham University. He is also an acclaimed author whose fiction and nonfiction works include The Auctioneer and The Baby in the Mirror. His latest release, A Thousand Days of Wonder, a scientist's chronicle of his daughter's developing mind, explores this topic for a general audience. Uh, Dr. Ferniho, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. It's a pleasure. It's great to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, certainly our pleasure. Uh, this is, I think, a really a very fascinating book, one I think that a lot of people should take a look at. But uh, maybe you can explain, why should we be interested in the infant's brain? So the first few years of life is where it all kicks off. I mean, everything that makes human beings what they are is established in those first few years. So our sense of self, language, our morality, our understanding of other people, our understanding of the physical world, all these things are in place very, very early on in life. And so when you study... The first three years of life, as I've done in this book, you get a handle on all the things that make us human. So pretty much everything that we eventually become is uh, laid in the groundwork in those early stages. Absolutely. I'm not saying that a personality is fully formed by, say, age three, but I'm saying everything got started. The basic capacities are in place. They're beginning to develop. Essential skills are being acquired. Whatever there is that is innate, that's already built in, that's already there at birth, is flourishing and coming into evidence. So, yeah, it's all there. It takes a little bit of teasing apart. It takes a little bit of careful excavation, if you like. Kids' minds are interesting phenomena, and they don't always work in rational ways. And so there's a fair bit of careful exploration um, needed. So why uh, did you decide to uh, chronicle your daughters growing up? Well, I wanted to bring some of this fantastic research to a wider audience. And I thought, what are some ways of doing this? I mean, one way I could have done it was to write a typical popular science book and just do my best to give an overview of the discipline, which would have been fun. And there are lots of great books like that out there. But I wanted to do something slightly different. I was confronted by this amazing phenomenon of a newborn baby you know I'd become a father for the first time and I was responding to it emotionally as well as intellectually as all parents do but I was in an interesting position because I'd also studied this subject academically you know I was doing research in this topic I was teaching it at a university 
but I was also writing fiction. That made me want to respond creatively to what I saw going on. In other words, I wanted to her to come alive. I wanted a, I wanted a small child's mind, personality to come alive for the reader. And I thought I could do that by trying to write this book in such a way that she came alive, my daughter came alive as a character in a novel would, but at the same time trying to get across some of this fantastic research that I'd been reading about, some of the research that I'd been working on myself. See, uh, you do mention that uh, you are a novelist as well. Had you not seen good depictions of children in the literature, both novels and nonfiction? Well, that's another thing that fascinated me, actually. When I started this project, I started looking around and thinking, who else has written about this period of life? You know, what other descriptions are there of what it's like to be a small child? And I guessed I would find some examples in fiction, in literature. But I really did struggle to find anything that would help me. There are some great kids in fiction. There are some great child narrators. But they all tend to be sort of five years and up. And when you look for depictions of what it's like to be a little person in, say, the first five years of life, there are very few. They're very thin on the ground. Those that you do find tend to depict a child's experience from, through the lens of an adult's consciousness. In other words, you're reading these words and you're being asked to imagine that it's a child speaking, but actually you know full well it's an adult. There's, there's no sense of really portraying a, a young person's consciousness. So I drew a blank with fiction, really. I couldn't find any good de- depictions of this period of life. The best stuff I found was attempts to write about young children's experience that were scientifically based. So scientists trying to do this, you know, going on the research that was out there and saying, right, what would happen? You know, what what would it mean to have this kind of perceptual system? What would it mean to have this kind of memory in operation? What would that mean for your experience? And so there are some good examples of this stuff out there, but they've been written by scientists rather than novelists. Basing their imaginative reconstructions of this early t- this early period of life on the science that's out there. I mean, we know quite a lot about infant perception, for example. We know at a very basic level, we know that newborn babies can't see too well. So that's the starting point. You know, we know that a a newborn baby can't bring objects in the world around him or her into close focus straight away unless they happen to be at the right distance away from the eyes. So that's the starting point. But at the same time, there's new research that shows that even though babies have pretty bad visual acuity, as it's called, you know, that their eyesight isn't great, they are amazingly responsive to certain signals, certain stimuli, foremost among which is a social signal. So the sight of a face, for example, or the sight of a pair of human eyes. Newborn babies are incredibly finely attuned to these kinds of visual stimuli. So what I was doing in the book was saying, right, okay, if your visual world was blurred, but at the same time you noticed certain aspects of it like faces how would that be what would what would that make of your world what would the world look like to you how would your experience feel Hmm. few of us actually can remember what it's like to be at that period of time because we're just really not forming any memories of that time yeah and and the the interesting question is why is that why don't we remember from around about two and a half most of the scientists who work on this topic would say there's little evidence of reliable memory from before about two and a half years of age. If, if somebody tells you they can rem- remember something, say, from age one, they're probably making it up. 
we can't say that for sure. We just we can't be absolutely categorical. But there isn't strong evidence for reliable memory from much before about two and a half. So why is that? Well, there are all sorts of reasons for that. I mean, one problem is language. You know, kids of two and a half do have language typically, but they're not expert enough in language that they can code their experience, that they can convert their experience into words, that they can describe the world for themselves. So one thing that seems to happen at around two and a half is that kids get better at describing the world for themselves and entering into conversations with other people in which memories can be laid down because they are being talked about, because events are being spoken about. So there are all sorts of reasons why memory might not be working in the way that it does later on in life. But that gives us a real problem when we're trying to reconstruct this period of life because I can't remember what it's like, you can't remember what it's like, the novelists who I've complained aren't putting this stuff into their books, they can't remember what it's like. So we're we're all guessing. But if we can base our guesswork on the science, then I think it's an interesting exercise to try and imagine this the experiences of a very small person mm. when you quiz your daughter about what it was like in her first formative years as well you, you mentioned that she's uh, unable also to recall yeah i mean it's a crazy question that starts the book I, mm-hmm. I, I start the book off with a an interview in which i'm asking her what it was like to be a newborn baby which is a, a dumb thing to ask of a three-year-old but <laughs> the, the reasons why it's dumb are quite interesting you know what, why is it such a crazy thing to ask as it happened, she made a very good job of trying to answer the question. She did recall some fragments of experience. What we do find is that early memories tend to be fragmentary. They tend to be heavily dominated by perceptual qualities. So, for example, the quality of the light. Early memories are often full of sunlight, for example, because perceptual stimuli tend to get remembered. But what the young brain can't do is knit those memories together, knit those bits of perceptual information in with other bits of information which build up to create a picture, to create a story that we recognize as a memory. So, yeah, even in my daughter's answers to that question, her her answer eventually was, it was very sunny when I asked her what what she remembered about being a newborn baby. Uh, even there, you, we're seeing, you know, there's some evidence that there's something going on, there's something being recalled, but it's fragmentary. Mm-hmm. It's perceptual information which hasn't been knitted together into a complete memory. Mm. It's not a bad memory to have, though, things being sunny. Yeah, no, it's a good memory. I'm glad you remembered that than, than something else. <laughs> so is it just that our sense of self really hasn't developed until much later on in life? I think that's a good way of putting it. One of the themes that emerged for me in writing this book was how important it is for us to gain a sense of self somehow, but also to begin to create a narrative of our own lives within which we are the stars. And that was very much the theme that that emerged, that became the overarching theme for the book. It was how a person comes to have a story, really, how a little person comes to situate herself within a narrative. And there are all sorts of qualities that feed into that. I mean, I think you have to have language on the whole, usually. Um, You have to have a certain kind of social understanding. You need to understand about other people's minds and about your own mind. You need to know that your mind was the same mind that had those experiences earlier in your life, those events that you're trying to remember. But also you need to be able to cast yourself into the future. You need to be able to position yourself 
in the future and think about who you will be a year from now, two years from now, when you're grown up, and so on. And all these qualities come together in the development of a self. And, you know, you really see this happening in the first three years of life. That's why it was one of the great joys of being a parent. You see this little self-developing. And when you sort of look at the psychological processes that are going on behind that, it's compelling. It's, it's a fascinating process. What was the most fascinating thing you can remember about your child growing up? I'm often asked, actually, whether she kind of made me tear up the textbooks. <laughs> she made me do a lot of things, but tearing up the textbooks. I couldn't really say that she did because I'm only looking at one child. I mean, I deliberately chose to just pick one child, not to try and be representative. I think Athena, my daughter, stands for all children. I mean, she's different to other kids, for sure. But the things that are going on for her in her story are the same that are going on for kids all over the world. But the, in terms of the overturning any orthodoxy about the scientific picture of developmental psychology, I couldn't really say that she did because I couldn't base the overturning of a theory on, on evidence from one child. But she was doing things that you know, you're not supposed to be able to do at a certain age. For example, I talk about the development of social understanding, as I've just mentioned in the book. So when the children understand that other people have minds, other people have beliefs and desires and thoughts that are different from their own. And there's very strong evidence that something profound happens at around age four, and that kids acquire an ability to think about other minds in a new way. And this is a familiar capacity, which you may well have heard of, and, you, and your listeners may well have heard of, called the theory of mind or the false belief task, which is where you ask a child to predict where a character will look for an object when that character hasn't seen that the object has been moved somewhere. So let me give you an example. We were playing a game with some of Athena's dolls, and we were going to have a pretend picnic. And we were looking for a particular one of these dolls called Jake. I went off into one room in the house, the room that we call the study, looking for this particular doll. And Athena, without me having any conversation with her, Athena pointed to another room, which is the living room, and she said, in there. Mm. Okay, so all she's doing is recognizing that I'm looking for this particular doll, Jake, and that I'm looking in the wrong place. And so she's correcting me. She's saying, effectively, she's saying, he's not in, he's not in there, he's in there. Mm. But in doing that, she's showing an amazing cognitive capacity. She's showing the ability to represent my false belief about a situation my erroneous belief that Jake is in the study and to lead me instead to a correct belief that Jake is in the living room. And so she's doing theory of mind. She's understanding false belief. Now she's actually doing this in this particular example at about age two and a half, not at age four, which is when kids are supposed to be able to do this thing. And Athena is not unusual in this respect because lots of kids can do this. They show this capacity in real-life situations quite early on. But if you give them the standard experimental test of the capacity, then they fail it until about age four. Mm. So that was, that was the kind of thing that surprised me, that interested me, that made me think it was, it was great fun to be watching mm. these processes happen in action so that I could compare them against what the textbooks tell you is supposed to be happening. Well, clearly the textbooks aren't always right. <laughs> Absolutely, they're definitely not. <laughs> Um, so how much of a blank slate do you think we are? I think there's a, a complex interaction between nature and nurture 
that, that determines how we turn out. So no, I don't think we're a blank slate. I think environment plays a very important part. I think what parents do and what peers do and what siblings do is incredibly important. But I also think that a child's innate capacities, their genetic predispositions, their innate personality traits are also incredibly important. Nobody in this game of developmental psychology would come down on one side or another. Mm. Everybody knows that both are important. Nature works together with nurture. The interesting question is how they work together. Okay. Just exactly how does the environment, does experience come to act upon an innate capacity? I mean, how can that be working? So there's some fascinating stuff going on in genetics, for example, that shows that the expression of genes is affected by the environmental conditions within which that organism is living. Genes can be switched on and off by things going on in the environment. And if that's going on, if, if the supposedly immutable blueprints for development can be switched on and off by the environment, then all sorts of things can as well. In developmental psychology, we see this happening all the time. We, say, we see nature and nurture working together, affecting each other, and creating this incredibly complex picture of development. You know, so there's a lot of work in neurosciences that uh, show that this is the critical period of development in which most of the connections are really being formed. Yeah, there's evidence that there are certain important periods in development. So depending on which particular capacity you're talking about, I mean, we know that, for example, that there is a critical period for language development. If you don't develop language by teenage years, you probably won't be able to do so. But in fact, you know, most human babies, most human children acquire language much before that. And there are, so there are lots of sensitive and critical periods going on throughout development. It's one thing to say that you benefit from a certain amount of input and stimulation within a particular time period. It's another to conclude from that that just cranking up the stimulation is going to lead to endlessly improving benefits for the child. Overstimulating the child is probably going to be counterproductive. There's lots of evidence that this is the case. You know, children need a certain amount of stimulation and then that's enough. You know, any more isn't really going to get you anywhere. We just have to be careful. We have to look at different aspects of development separately. We need to see which bits of the brain are working and which are the critical periods for those bits of the brain and try to build up what is inevitably going to be a complex picture of development. But there are some, some great research out there that's doing that. There's some great, some wonderful books out there that are describing how brain development works in those first few years and what parents can learn from that. Do you have any uh, particularly funny or humorous stories about your daughter growing up? Well, there's, there's plenty of fun in the book. I mean, <laughs> I got a lot of humor in the book out of what she said. I mean, she said children say funny things, and their, their way of telling it as they see it can be absolutely hilarious. I mean, there's one scene in the book where we're playing the game I Spy, and she's quite young. I mean, she's coming up for three. It's quite young to be playing that particular game, but we were on a very long car journey, and and we needed to do something. And it was great fun because she was, you know, in I, spy, in I Spy, you have to think of a word, and the other person has to guess which word you're thinking of. But that in itself is requiring all sorts of cognitive skills. So Athena, when it was her turn to think of a word, she wasn't quite, she'd sort of lose track of the fact that she was thinking of the word and she wasn't meant to tell anybody else, and we were meant to be guessing her word. You know, it was theory of mind going on. You know, she had to, she had to show a certain level of social understanding. And, and so do we. So, so we got into some 
funny situations with, with that game, for example. Uh, it is a lot of fun. Kids are great fun. They also, they're also very serious beings. They have to be taken seriously, I think. They have to be respected as, as human beings and not just seen as figures of fun because they are finding their way. They're learning about things that we take for granted and they have a point of view. They have a, they have a perspective and, and they should have a voice in the world. Mm. So I tried to do, do justice to her, but I also tried to be respectful and to take her seriously as a person. Well, I think you certainly did that. Uh, we are running slightly out of time. I'm just curious if you have some uh, final words. Well, just that it was great fun to write. I hope that, it, that people will read it and enjoy it as a novel, really, as a memoir, as, as something that is a good read, that, that works as a story and that brings this character alive. And if you find that you're picking up lots of scientific information <laughs> as well, then I really think the job has done its, its work. What are the most important thing for me to, was to bring her alive as a person. There's something amazing, there's something wonderful about being with a small child, which isn't written about very much. And that really was the emotion that I wanted to communicate. That's what I wanted to get across to readers. And if, if the book does that, then I think it's done its job. Well, the new book is called A Thousand Days of Wonder, A Scientist's Chronicle of His Daughter's Developing Mind. Uh, Dr. Fernio, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. And we're just listening to Dr. Charles Ferniho discussing A Thousand Days of Wonder. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. It's time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It's our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic highly developed or still a blank slate. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they're highly developed or still a blank slate and maybe a little reason why. Uh, Dr. Ferniho, are you ready to play the game? Yep. Okay, here we go. Person number one, highly developed or blank slate, pop idol judge Simon Cowell. Oh, I think he's I think he's highly developed. I think he knows exactly what he's doing. Smart guy, but he's cup of tea, but <laughs> he's thought it through. He's really thought it through. <laughs> All right, person number two is uh, Sharon Osborne. Yeah, she's a smart cookie too. Um, she's not a blank slate. No, she's, she's been inscribed upon by experience. She's had an interesting life, a difficult life, a fun life in some ways. <laughs> All right, number three is the football great David Beckham. Oh, he, he's got to be pretty blank. There's some good jokes about <laughs> David, but I probably couldn't say them on the air. <laughs> uh, all right, uh, number four is the famed biologist Richard Dawkins. Oh, well, yes, he's a, he's a smart guy. I'm, I'm on record as calling him a, a national treasure. Mm-hmm. Very important character. I don't believe with much of... I don't, I don't agree with much of what he says, but a very great communicator of science and 
controversial figure, but a very smart one. All right, and finally, number five, it's uh, your Prime Minister, Gordon Brown. Is he still Prime Minister? I thought he'd <laughs> all been kicking off here, and we, we almost lost him as PM. Uh, I can't work Gordon out at all. I sort of forget who he is, and I forget that he's still our, our PM, so that probably answers the question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maybe not a ringing endorsement then. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, uh, Dr. Fernio, I do want to thank you for sticking around, playing our game, and, of course, talking about your book, which is, again, A Thousand Days of Wonder, a scientist chronicle of his daughter's developing mind. Uh, again, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. Take care. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.